So Chelsea, I have three articles for you to choose from. Uh, Each one just as important as the last. Okay, give and me a I'm hint. Going to... Only a hint for each. I was going to give you the headline for each. No, give me a hint only. Okay, one's about Uber. One is about corporate greed. Uh-huh. Florida man. Oh, I got to go with Florida man. Okay. Man, this one is just such a weird story. And I found like eight different versions of this article. I decided to go with the Vice one because, you know, oh, that's yeah, just good, what you do. Good. Okay, I like that. So, and I'm not going to read the headline because it gives too much of the story away. Okay, We're just going to go you. right into this story. We already know the gist of it. So an incident took place outside of Patrick Base Force Base in Brevard County, Florida. As reported by Military.com, Corey Ellen Johnson stole a Ford F-150 truck and drove it to Space Force Base. When local deputies arrested him, he explained that he was on a mission given to him by the President of the United States. And they let him continue, right? <laughs> Mr. Johnson disclosed. He took possession of the vehicle three days prior and did not know who the owner of the vehicle was. Johnson's arrest, affidavit said, he stated the President of the United States told him in his head he needed to take the vehicle. That's some dark Brandon shit right there. According to the arrest records, Johnson explained that the president, in his head, needed him to drive to Patrick Air Force Base to warn the Guardians. And that's what he said, like, warn the Guardians. He was told by the president he needed to tell the government there was U.S. aliens fighting with Chinese dragons. Oh, shit. Johnson admitted he had no idea who owned the truck and that he'd taken it without permission. The <laughs> cops arrested him for Grand Theft Auto and he never did make it on the base to warn Space Force. <laughs> okay, now give us the headline. <laughs> <laughs> I just need to finish the article. At the moment, okay. the Space Force is mostly dealing with getting set up. It's only been about around for a few years and it's busy filling out its ranks and taking over jobs from other branches. The Patrick Space Force base in charge of satellite launches and operations on the east coast of America. It's hard to know if it if a fight between US aliens and Chinese dragons would technically fall under its jurisdiction. It must. <laughs> Most likely, a joint task force representing all the branches would be tasked with handling the alien dragon war, and the space force would most likely fall into a supply logistics and intelligence role in the alien dragon war. They'd run satellites, collect and organize data, and run cyber operations. Space Force is mostly a branch of computer nerds who specialize in space. It isn't even actively recruiting pilots. <laughs> Headline, Florida man arrested trying to warn Space Force base of alien dragon war. Yep, that summed it up. <laughs> good for him. I'm glad you picked it. It's a good article. Cue yeah. music. From the unexplained to the mundane, come join us on a journey to the fringe. Hello and welcome to Journey to the Fringe, a podcast with friendly hosts that would never hurt you. Though that may just be due to technological restraints of our medium for the time being. We are your passive hosts due to restrictive circumstances, Taylor and Chelsea, here today to once again talk with you about remote viewing. Now, yesterday or last week, depending on how you're doing your listening, we spoke about the US government's involvement in remote viewing. A few names were dropped, not to be a big deal. We didn't talk to any of them. And today, Chelsea is going to pick up where we left off. And I am just going to let you take over from here. Yeah, so as... Taylor has so recently let you know. I'm covering some of the many faces of remote viewing. Maybe some people we already talked about. Maybe some new people. So let's just jump right in and get acquainted with them in no particular order. Okay, there's some order, but in which I chose, which is of no particular order to you, the listener. Please note, there were many, many people involved in these projects. 40, as we spoke about in the last episode. So I did pick and choose who I included in this episode. So the first that I have chose to include and start with in no particular order is Hal in brackets Harold is his legal first name Harold Putoff Putoff has a PhD in electrical engineering from Stanford University and in 1969 he co-authored with R. Pantel Fundamentals of Quantum Electronics. In the 70s, CIA and DIA granted funds to put off to investigate paranormal abilities, as we briefly touched on on the last episode. Just kidding, it was in very much detail. This is a brief summary of it. 
who collaborated with Russell Targ in a study of the purported psychic abilities of Uri Geller, Ingo Swan, Pat Price, Joseph McGon Eagle, and others as part of the Stargate project. Put Off became the director of said project. I need to get something out of the way now in regards to a few of these gentlemen we will be talking about, so I won't bring it up again. We also, again, touched on it on the last episode. Put Off, as well as Ingo Swan and Pat Price, to my surprise, were Scientologists. And Put Off attributed much of his personal remote viewing skills to his involvement with Scientology. That was probably, in, in my mind, that was the biggest surprise that came out of the research. I know. Is the intertwining of Scientology It's super all of weird. This. It's super weird there's a lot of them probably a pretty high percentage higher than you would think i thought it would be zero when i first started reading not that i already higher had than my you would mind want. made up about it yeah. yeah generally my view on it would be who fucking cares but no when it's a significant amount it becomes worrisome then you do care yeah then you do. yeah then you yeah, want to know like how many of these people are involved in scientology and it might be something i ask more going forward like was he involved in scientology no okay let's move on so he attributes his remote viewing skills to his involvement with scientology with his odd whereby he attained at that time the highest level in the church which is operating Thetan. Take with that what you will. Oh, that's what OT stands for. Okay. 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 Great. I'm glad we got some clarification on that. We answered some questions from that weren't asked for the last episode. All three eventually left Scientology in the late 70s. Side over. Probably won't mention Scientology again. I might. That's not a promise. His team of psychics is said to have identified spies, located Soviet weapons and technologies such as a nuclear submarine in 1979, and helped find SCUD missiles in the first Gulf War and plutonium in North Korea in 1994. This is just a test because we already learned that last episode. This episode is just basically a recap of last episode. In 1985, Putoff founded a for-profit company, EarthTech International, and the Institute for Advanced Studies, which he also directed. This institute was to pursue ideas Putoff found interesting related to energy generation and propulsion. It's a pretty interesting website. Topics include fundamental physics, interstellar studies, including search for extraterrestrial intelligence, an entire heading for experiments, which were over my head so I'm just gonna leave it at experiments and life sciences. Putoff and EarthTech were granted a U.S. patent in 1998 claims that information could be transmitted through a distance using a modulated potential with no electric or magnetic field components. These claims are generally considered to be false and no such transmitter has been constructed. The case is used for educational purposes in patent law as an example of a valid patent for an inoperable invention. According to the Wisconsin Law School case study, quotes, the lesson of the put-off patent is that in a world where both types of patents are more and more common, even a competent examiner may fail to distinguish innovation from pseudoscience, end quote. In fact, this is the funnest of all facts. I knew his name sounded really familiar, not just from everything that we just talked about. He co-founded the company To The Stars with Tom DeLonge in in about 2010. That's where that name's from. Okay. Yeah, right? I know. Yeah. So that is Hal Putoff. Next, we move on to the logical random order, which is Russell Targ. Targ is a physicist, parapsychologist, author, and well-known for the footprint he left on remote viewing somehow because he also was a pioneer in the development of the laser. Yeah, so remote viewing just automatically trumps the development of the laser that he helped pioneer. Targ joined the Stanford Research Institute in 1971, as noted above with Harold Putoff, going on later to the Stargate project. In 1972, Putoff and Targ tested remote viewer Ingo Swan at SRI. We learned about that last episode, so stay with me. And the experiment led to the visit of two employees of the CIA's Directorate of Science and Technology. Result was a 50,000 CIA-sponsored project known as the Stargate Project, which we learned about in the last one. 
lots of overlap. The SRI remote viewing project also encompassed the work of such consultant consciousness researchers, a fancy title, as the artist writer Ingo Swan and military intelligence corps chief warrant officer Joseph McMoneagle. That was a mouthful. Obviously, he had written a couple books on his work in this realm as well as a load of other books did have a lot of books. While Targ and Putoff both expressed the belief that Uri Geller, Pat Price, and Ingo Swan all had genuine psychic abilities, flaws were found in the controls in the experiments, and Geller was caught using sleight of hand on many other occasions. The SRI test gave Geller substantial control over the procedures used to test him with few limits on his behavior during the test. In 1982, Targ with Keith Harari and Anthony White formed a company, Adelphi Associates, to sell psychic consulting services to individuals and businesses. In the book Mind Race, Targ and Harari claimed that all nine Silver Futures predictions made at Delphi in 1982 were correct. However, a later attempt failed. Targ retired as a senior staff scientist at Lockheed Missiles and Space Company, where he developed airborne laser systems for the detection of wind shear and air turbulence. Having retired in 1997, he now writes books on psychic research and teaches remote viewing worldwide. Next up we have Pat Price who's an early remote viewer who was involved with yeah, you'll see. He's a former Burbank, California police officer and former Scientologist. But you already knew that. Oh, yeah, you knew it. Hey, he had a really good um, former adjective Burbank, before California police Scientology, officer. which oh, is former. Oh, former Scientologist, right. I thought we were so, talking about the other one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, also former cop would be good too. But he participated know. in a number of Cold War era remote viewing experiments, including the U.S. government-sponsored project S-C-A-N-A-T-E, Skinati, and the Stargate Project. Price joined the program after a chance encounter with fellow Scientologist at the time, Al Putoff, and did not know this one, Ingo Swan near SRI, and he ended up being one of their best remote viewers. Working with maps and photographs provided to him by the CIA, Price claimed to have been able to retrieve information from facilities behind Soviet lines. He is probably best known for, not by me, the descriptions of the Soviet arms factory in, oh god, Semipalantinsk. That's pretty good. I'm just going to leave it at that. 1974, during which he sketched and described true to scale and in fairly good detail, a huge eight-wheel gantry crane and a camouflage steel ball 20 meters in diameter under construction. His ability to read the inscriptions of files in a secret facility that he was viewing, which he has never seen before, also caused a sensation among the secret services. His drawings were confirmed in every detail by Saturday satellite photos and later educational work. I do have these drawings here. I will, as always, put them up in the socials. Fingers crossed they actually get there. I'll do it, I'll do it. Up next, Joseph McMonagall. He was also an early remote viewer, one of the first recruited for Project Stargate. Remember, we heard about him with his coffee of mug in the first episode. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah, his, his coffee of mug that will be no edited out. So nobody will know what you're talking about. Are you guys glad we already covered these things in the previous episode that you know what we're talking about? Joe enlisted in the army at the ripe age of 18 to get away from his family turmoil. His early career in the military was as an NCO, not sure what that is, didn't look it up, and retired 20 years later as a chief warrant officer and was involved in intelligence work for 15 years. That's actually not a long time. Richard Doty was a lifer. McMoneagle was best known for claims surrounding the investigation of remote viewing and the use of paranormal abilities for military intelligence. He was known as remote viewer number one. He retired from the army in 1984 but continued working as a consultant for Stargate until 1993. After funding ceased on Project Stargate, McMoneagle became a speaker at the Monroe Institute where he completed his remote viewing training. 
And I'm just going to take another quick aside. I'm full of asides as I brought up the Monroe Institute, which hasn't come up until this point. And it's literally a quick aside. So, you know, maybe a good episode in the future because it has nothing to do with remote viewing, but very cool nonetheless. Here it is. Monroe Institute in brackets, TMI in bracket, is a nonprofit education and research organization devoted to the exploration of human consciousness based in Faber, Virginia, United States. That's my aside. Joe then moved on and opened a business entitled Intuitive Intelligence Applications Inc. in which he aimed at the corporate world and included services such as can help a wildcatter find an oil well or a quarry operator know where to mine. Edgar Casey could not handle this, wouldn't do it. So of course, where there's will, there's a way. So Joe moves in and quickly takes us like a hundred years later after Edgar Casey dies. I know you're wondering what has he done? I know we already said some in the last one, but let's just say it again. He claims to have remote viewed a Chinese nuclear facility as well as the Red Brigades, which were a far left Marxist Leninist armed organization and guerrilla group based in Italy, responsible for numerous violent incidents, including the abduction and murder of former prime minister Aldo Moro. Again, what they remote viewed, who even knows what they're remote viewing? I mean, I could close my eyes right now and be like, yeah, I just remote viewed the Red Brigades as well. They were just sitting there like roasting marshmallows. I don't know. Yeah. And honestly, if you just said it was the communists who did it, like yeah. nine times out of nine, the US government would be like, oh yeah, yeah, you're right. Don't worry. Just like you said, like you could say, yeah, I need this money because USSR and they'd be like, okay, you could remote view things that the US SSR is up to. Yeah. We're going to prevent communism. Yeah. Take as and they're much like, money oh, as you Oh shit, need. I just like remote viewed Stalin and they'd be like, oh my god like you, you just did that or something to the extent. Next up, he claimed to have remote viewed Muammar Gaddafi that's his name, yeah, Gaddafi, Gaddafi, who was a Libyan revolutionary, politician, and political theorist, brotherly, yeah, the Later brotherly leader, yeah. I didn't really know who he was, sorry, brotherly leader and guide of the revolution of Libya, the chairman of the revolutionary command in Libya, then prime minister of Libya, among other things. So he just had a whole lot of titles as he went through the ranks, and yeah, he's a weird guy. That's for everyone else that didn't know who that was. I recognize the name at what he got up to in his life. I don't think he was a good person. Next point, before we get too much into me not knowing that stuff. Monigal also claims to have predicted the location and existence of the Soviet Typhoon-class submarine in 1979. And then in January 1980, it was confirmed by satellite photos. Can you believe it? Mars exploration at 1 million years BC, which Taylor just read last episode, which I'm really glad he did because I was going to read it, but that just took a whole lot out of my episode, which it probably needed. That was a good time. He also claimed to have remote viewed the Oklahoma bombing event, actually. What year was that? That was like 91, Let me just pull it up. I have the link right here to what he remote viewed, so let's just take a quick peek at it. No harm in doing that. I was going to read you the Marbs one. 95. I don't know why they need a lead up to like what he's sitting here with his mug of coffee and like they just show up with this envelope. I don't know. No, his coffee of coffee mug. of mugs. Sorry. That that was April nineteenth, nineteen ninety five. Is it not shut down by then? Uh, I can't remember. It's really close. Well, of course he didn't remote view it like the day before it happened. It probably was remote viewed and like, hold on. He did a future thing? Hold on, this was faxed April 20th, 1995. Huh. So, I don't know. We should go back and listen to the episode that was just on. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so here's what he had to say about the Oklahoma bombing. He says here, the following. The following is what I have so far. Five men involved directly. Oh, maybe he remote viewed it after it happened. Actually, he's huh. reading it like... He's reading it like this already happened. Okay, hold on. If I read this, do we know? Is this part of Stargate or is this him on his own accord? I don't know. It doesn't say... Okay, hold on. Let me go back here. Okay. Ed May of Sake called yesterday morning and volunteered to send me unsolicited information he had obtained from the remote viewer named Joe relating to the Oklahoma City bombing. It, it, it's redacted where it says memo for from subject. Okay, so redacted. that will be part of Stargate then. Okay. He asked me for a point of contact in law enforcement who might want information. I said I did not know a point of contact for anyone at the FBI, but provided him with 
one later in the day after speaking with Redacted. I recommended that he call the FBI immediately. I also recommended that he send it to you as well, Al, since you have not redacted. <laughs> Since you have me for evaluating and disseminating such information, the information is included in this fax. Dear Ed, following three pages are what we have on the O-City disaster. Even if our friends in DC don't use this, they will have a file record to check against reality when the info unfolds. Maybe it will help to speed up other processes. I just get so frustrated knowing there is so much like this that I can do and nobody will give me the desk to do it from. Sigh. In time. In time. If anything else pops up, I will fax it along to you or pass it over the email lines and see you later it literally says the letter c u l eight t e r okay so first page is a drawing it has like a road a gravel road driveway house here's the scribbles that say lots of trees mixed pine and hardwoods house in this area arrows to Oklahoma to St. Louis. I don't know what that is. Okay, following is what I have so far. Five men involved. Three actually delivered the bomb. All are Arabic. Live in the Arabic community of the university. Don't know which one it is in the town of Springfield, Missouri. If used forged Kuwaiti passports to enter the country, these were probably stolen during the occupation or at copied. Bomb was a chemical bomb manufactured at the house drawn. Timer was solid state and activated remotely. Name Carl has something to do with this. I believe Carl is a traditional Arabic name. I just said that. No, it wasn't in the, the document. Okay. Okay, good. There, <laughs> there is, I wouldn't, wasn't sure if you could discern that from my no change in tone. There is a second bomb, or at least that in my thoughts. I believe they intend to use it somewhere in the vicinity of the last. By that, I mean in the surrounding state to Oklahoma. Example, St. Louis or Little Rock. Bomb delivery vehicle was either white, light color, in cream, or light tan. See a square end of the vehicle, such as in a van or pickup with a camper shell, smaller than the vehicle used in the New York bombing. Leave the people responsible are working for the one Iraqi's first choice or possibly Palestinian second choice. April 19th, 1995, 10 p.m. V372. And then there's another drawing of a house. And that's it. So his view is that it was all done by Middle Easterners? Yeah, Arabic. Palestine. Okay. Yeah, Yeah, that that's not at all what happened. Mm. Oh, he remote viewed that. Okay. <laughs> you you know the story behind the Oklahoma bombing, right? I Not off the top of my head right at this moment. Like, it was two white guys who used fertilizer. Right. Yes, I did know that. Okay, that's not even close to what the I forget their names. One, um, they're, I believe they're still alive. Carl. Take a quick look. You go by Arabic curl. Arabic <laughs> with this Kuwaiti passport. <laughs> What are their names? Because if you went oh. by Arabic Carl, that could definitely throw a remote viewer off. Oh, that's Tim McVeigh. Timothy McVeigh. Alfred P. Murrah. Yeah, those are the two. Okay, so nothing of this was even close. I wonder whose house he was remote viewing. I don't know, but it's a very <laughs> different story. Sorry, Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols are the two. Okay, okay, nothing even close to Carl. Not do even think, a Carl. Do you think anybody was ever, like, going through the remote viewing records declassified by the CIA and they're like, Hey, that's my fucking house! <laughs> That'd be awkward. My yeah. name's Carl, too. <laughs> the fuck? Oh, I'm gonna sue the shit out of the CIA. Okay, next. He claimed to have remote viewed the Iranian hostage crisis, made famous by our last episode, in which we said it'll be... You can listen to it here on this episode. Or, you know, just made famous by Iran keeping hostages of yeah, American intelligence people. It's mostly famous from that. Okay, so just to touch on what happened here a little bit, like, as always, it's the Coles notes of what happened. So, the Iran hostage crisis happened November 1979, where 52 U.S. diplomats and citizens were held hostage after a group of militarized Iranian college students belonging to the Muslim student followers of the Imam's line supporting the Iranian revolution took over the U.S. Embassy in Theron and seized hostages. A diplomatic standoff ensued. Hostages were held for 444 days, being released on January 20th, 1981. 
McMoneagle was on a team with five others on the mission to save 52 Americans seized in November 1979 in the Iran hostage crisis. I was just making sure that you paid attention on the last one, or maybe that I did because I wrote it twice. July 1980, a vision of a sick man on a stretcher in an aeroplane struck him. He's like, oh my God. They are going to release one of the hostages, announced the psychic, a heavy set 60 year old man with glasses whose name post is withholding. I don't know his name yet, but it's found in a deck of cards and he has multiple sclerosis, MS. Four days later, the Iranians let go Richard Queen, a 28 year old US embassy worker whose poor health had spiraled downhill after 250 days in captivity. Quickly after that, it was learned that Queen, whose last name is indeed a playing card, suffered from multiple sclerosis and would likely have died without specialized doctors and a quick flight out of Tehran. Man, you, you just gotta think, like, they got that info and they're like, fuck yeah, Jack's coming home. Yeah. <laughs> um, I also said Tehran. I spelt it Tehran. So, yeah, just Tehran. a quick note for if you you got here, it's not Theron, it's Tehran. <laughs> yeah, that's what he predicted. McMoneagle's future predictions included, he predicted the future. McMoneagle's future predictions included the passing of a teenager's right to work bill. Yeah, right. A new religion without the emphasis of Christianity. The science of the soul. Was, was he a Scientologist by chance? McMoneagle, I... I don't think he was, but... I don't think he was either, because they all seem pretty proud of being Scientologists. A vaccine for AIDS, movement to eliminate television, and a temporary tattoo craze that would replace the wearing of clothing, all of which were supposed to take place between 2002 and 2006. Fuck, that was a good time when we replaced our clothing with temporary tattoos. Yeah, it was short. In 2002 to 2006. Yes. It's too bad we're in 2022 now. And that craze <laughs> is past. It was a good yeah. time. Terrible in the winter. Never comes back again, though. So. No, it was terrible that winter. Yeah. You never go back. <laughs> also, the sunburns. Yes. It was terrible in all seasons. It was comfortable for one day. McMoneagle claims that remote viewing is not always accurate, but that it was able to locate hostages and downed airplanes. For other psychics, he says that 98% of the people are kooks. He reports that he worked with Dean Radin at the Consciousness Research Laboratory, University of Nevada, Las Vegas, to seek patentable ideas via remote viewing for a future machine Radin conceived. Monegal also says that he worked on missing persons cases in Washington, San Francisco, New York, and Chicago, as well as employing remote viewing as a time machine to make various observations such as the origin of the human species. According to McMoneagle, humans came from creatures somewhat like sea otters <laughs> rather than primates and were created in a laboratory by creators who seeded the earth and then departed. Sorry, wow, wait. Wow, so much wait. insight on that one. Yeah? Remote viewing was created in the lab or sea otters? Uh, the sea otters that we stemmed from. <laughs> okay. Of course. Okay. Okay, that's all McMoneagle. So let's put that coffee of mug down and move on to Courtney Brown. <laughs> okay, first point I have on Courtney Brown. This is a he. He identifies as a he. Was not expecting that. That I actually discovered after I had done a fair amount of work on Courtney Brown. I for sure thought it was a she. He was an associate professor in the political science department at Emory University and is known for promoting the use of non-linear mathematics in social scientific research. I'm not sure what this is and upon looking it up I was left even more confused so that's where we leave it. It's not important to the story anyhow. Because most importantly he's known as a proponent of remote viewing. Brown learned the basic transcendental meditation, which is a form of silent mantra meditation, as well as an advanced technique called the TM City program in 1991. This is a form of meditation introduced by Maharishi 
Mahesh Yogi in 1975. Goal of the TM SETI program is to accelerate personal growth and improve mind-body coordination by training the mind to think from what the Maharashi has described as the fourth major state of consciousness called transcendental consciousness. Claims what to are the engaged, other three? I don't know. Awake, asleep. Really? Well, there's got to be another one. I don't know. Awake, asleep, daydreaming, perhaps? Major states of... Let's just take a look quick. Three major states of consciousness. The conscious, the subconscious, and the unconscious. Okay. Okay, and then there's this one. Whatever this one is. I need to go back to my... The era. transcendental, okay. yeah. Yeah, okay. So he claims to engaged in yoga... This is Courtney. He claims to have engaged in yoga... Yogic. Flying. Yogic. Yogic. Flying at the Golden Dome of Pure Knowledge at the Maharashi... University of Management in Fairfield, Iowa in 1992. Upon looking into yogic flying, I came up with a few answers to what it is in various places. From what I gather, it's a mental physical exercise of hopping while cross-legged, which is the central aspect of the TM City program. With the introduction of the TM City program in 1976, it was postulated that a group of people practicing this program twice a day together in one place would increase life-supporting trends in the surroundings with the threshold of the group size being the square root of 1% of the area's population. What? It's controversial and labeled a pseudoscience by skeptics such as Carl Sagan. I had to throw that in. So do with that information what you will. I barely grasp that. Not Carl Sagan. Yeah, all I'm really picturing is a bunch of people in a room sitting cross-legged like bouncing up and down. At least 1% of the population. Yes, of the area surrounding them. So that's part of Courtney's background. And he was also a founder of the Farsight Institute, which is a nonprofit research and educational institute offering a large library of free materials on remote viewing. So humor me and go to the website, Farsight, as it sounds, F-A-R-S-I-G-H-T dot org. And just let me know what you think upon your first glance at it. Okay. I'm just waiting for it to come up. Yeah. The Farsight Institute is a nonprofit. Oh, that is very 90s. Yeah, it looks like every website I ever visited in the 90s. I just wanted you to look at that. It has some very nice, what would you call that? Like uh, Wow, but they're still they're still updating it. Like yeah. there's something in on the Putin same in his inner that. circle. They haven't even updated yeah. it to make it look like it's a new website. The, like America's it? post-election 2024 aftermath. <laughs> <laughs> they may even be going into the future. Yeah, they. I mean, they're remote viewing. You can only remote view the future, apparently. Huh. Or Mars. Yeah, it's got a list of things on the left side that are very much so like a, a list that would be like on a 1990s web page. And then everything's a banner ad, yeah, but the they're all graphics, articles. Yeah, the graphics on this are a beauty. If you ever want to take a like look back to the 90s websites that you used to visit, go here. Yeah. yeah everything is a banner. This, it says right at the top, the Farsight Institute remote viewing research since 1995. And that's the last time that they hired a web developer to do anything with their website. Yeah, that's some pretty good articles. And they refuse to update. Refuse. It says here right on the website, we refuse to update. Anyhow, I just really like the website. I think it's... It's a great website. <laughs> yeah, it's very futuristic. Okay, so this promptly takes a turn in another direction. Brown's remote viewing findings have been dismissed by scientists and his colleagues at Emory University and others, and I'll tell you why. His colleague at his place of work, Emory University, Scott O. Lienfeld, stated that Brown has refused to subject his ideas and his claimed psychic powers to independent psychic testing on what Lillenheld describes as curious grounds. He normally acts as a data analyst while working with our remote viewers, who do the actual viewing, not Brown, who have been trained in procedures that were developed by the U.S. military. Among a variety of controversial topics, Brown has claimed to apply remote viewing to the study of multiple realities, non-linearity of time, planetary phenomena, extraterrestrial life, UFOs, Atlantis, and even Jesus Christ. 
I like Michael Shermer of Skeptics Magazine's take on Brown. He says about Brown, claims in Brown's two books are nothing short of spectacularly weird. Through his numerous SRV sessions, he says he has spoken with Jesus and Buddha, both apparently advanced aliens, visited inhabited planets, time traveled to Mars back when it was fully inhabited by intelligent ETs, and even determined that aliens are living among us. One group in particular resides underground in Mexico. Thanks, Richard Doty. Yeah, and you can tell all of this just by looking at his website. It is specifically set up for this type of audience. Brown has written six books basically about everything laid out by Mr. Shermer of Skeptics Magazine, as he said above. There is this other little thing I came across in regards to Courtney being... Oh, this is good. Okay. This other little thing I came across in regards to Courtney being involved... Involved in, kind of, being that he inspired the Heaven's Gate mass suicide. What? Yeah, I said that right. This came about because Brown helped spread the idea that the Halley Bop, Eel Bop Comet, was accompanied by a mysterious spaceship. A notion that may have inspired 39 members of the Heaven's Gate group to kill themselves. It was him that put this out. Brown was told by his own team of remote viewers that a ship lurked behind the comet and he spread this news on the airwaves and the internet. And this actually ties back to Coast to Coast AM. So with this brief commentary on it, I think we may have to actually revisit this either on a Coast to Coast lore episode that we've talked about or just this in general because like, I wasn't expecting this at all after all of it. Yeah. yeah. Right? Holy crap. So, yeah, that's Courtney Brown. Next up, I had Uri Geller, but Taylor literally said everything that I had written down, like, word for word. He must have remote He's a magician. It. That's it. Yeah. Like, he, like, must have sat down before the session and remote viewed my entire document and just took this right out and put it in the last episode. So, I have nothing more to say about Uri Geller. I actually, I saw an interesting thing on his Wikipedia page that I quite liked. Yeah. In 1971, a mechanical engineer student called Uri Goldstein attended one of Geller's shows and subsequently sued the show's promoters for breach of contract. He complained that Geller had promised demonstrations of several psychic powers, but had delivered only <laughs> sleight of hand and stage tricks. The case came before the civil court of Beersheba, and Geller was not present as the summons had been sent to the office of the promoter promoter Mikey Pellet, who ignored it as being trivial. Goldstein was awarded $27.50, around $5 for breach of contract. Later, Goldstein admitted that he went to the show specifically with the intention of suing to get his money back. <laughs> and he had already found a lawyer to represent him prior to attending the performance. I like how he bought it and he was like, I'm already going to get my fucking money back. I'm going to get these $5 back and it's going to cost me several hundred dollars. <laughs> but I will get it. And I'm purchasing it with that intent. But that was just, it was a good story I read. That is a good story. There's okay. a bunch of lawsuits outside of that one, but I like that story. That was a good story. He bought it with the intent of getting his money back. Okay, next up, Ingo Swan. We touched on him a little again in the last episode. He's yeah. a prominent... I feel like the best place to learn about Ingo Swan is in the movie Men Who Stare at Goats. Yeah. Because he's like I the main guy in that, he right? He is the main guy in that, yeah. And we didn't even talk about Men Who Stare at Goats. Might as well not start now. Ingo Swan, a prominent research participant in remote viewing. Ingo Swan was also a Scientologist, as were Pat Price and Putoff. So Ingo is also a co-creator along with Russell Targ and Harold E. Putoff of the remote viewing and in specifically Project Stargate. Swan is a claimed psychic who calls himself consciousness researcher who had sometimes experienced altered states of consciousness. He has said he does not get tested. I only work with researchers on well-designed experiments. According to Targ and Putoff, Swan-inspired innovations have led to impressive results in parapsychology and experiments not controlled by Swan have not been successful and are very rarely mentioned. Swan researched the process of remote viewing at the Stanford Research Institute, previously mentioned many times which experiments caught the eye of the CIA. Commonly credited with proposing the idea of the controlled remote viewing, the process in which viewers would view a location give nothing but its geographical core developed and tested with CIA funding. Argan put off right about their pilot experiments, quote, we couldn't overlook the possibility that perhaps Ingo knew the geographical features of the Earth and their approximate latitude and longitude. In brackets, it is Swan who suggested
suggested these coordinate remote viewing tests, not the experimenters, is in control. Or it was possible that we were inadvertently cueing the subject, Swan, since we as experimenters knew what the answers were. End quote. Soon, Targ and Putoff performed more experiments with Swan, and the controls were tightened to eliminate the possibility of error. This time, Swan was given the latitude and longitude of 10 targets. In the end, there would be 10 runs for a total of 100. Only the evaluations for the 10 targets for the 10th run, the last, were disclosed. The results for the target in the previous 90, runs 1 through 9, are ignored. For the 10th run, Swan had 7 hits, 2 neutral and 1 miss. The experiments came to a close. Targ and Putoff were positive something was happening. But what? They didn't say but what. They said they're not clear what it is. So, what did Swan remote view? Swan proposed a study to Targ and Putoff. At first, they resisted, for the resulting descriptions would be impossible to verify. Yet, on the evening of 27 April 1973, Targ and Putoff recorded Swan's remote viewing session of the planet Jupiter and Jupiter's moons prior to the Voyager probe's visit there in 1979. Do you find it weird that not only are they remote viewing, like, hostage situations and things like that, but they're also remote viewing like a lot of like super weird things that you would think the government would have no want to remote view like Mars there would be no purpose Saturn, yeah Atlantis. but to be fair like that's outside of this one that Ingo was specifically proposing Ed Dames is the one who does all the weird stuff the, some of them I mean they all pretty much stay maybe I should hold this for the end but they all pretty much stay in this line of work for the most part it's super interesting yeah. maybe at that point they're so specialized they can't branch out to do anything else anyhow swan asked for 30 minutes of silence that's a lot that's like a long time to be silent according to swan his ability to see jupiter took about three and a half minutes in the session he made several reports of the physical features of jupiter such as its atmosphere and the surface of its core swan claimed to see bands of crystals in its atmosphere which he likened to the clouds and possibly like the rings of saturn Voyager probe later confirmed the existence of the rings of Jupiter, although these rings are not in the planet's atmosphere. However, Swan's claim that crystals are present in the atmosphere is supported by observations by NASA's Galileo spacecraft, clouds of ammonia ice crystals in the northwest corner of Jupiter's great red spot. Following are Swan's own version of his statements from 1995, 22 years later, then the 1973 experiments took place. I'm just going to touch on this briefly. Very high in the atmosphere, there are crystals. They glitter. Maybe the strikes are like bands of crystals. Maybe the rings of Saturn. Though not far out like that. Very close within the atmosphere. An intelligible sentence. I bet you they'll reflect radio probes. Is that possible if you have a cloud of crystals that were assaulted by different radio waves? Now we'll go down through. It feels really good there. Hehe. <laughs> I said that before, didn't I? Inside those cloud layers, those crystal layers, they look beautiful from the outside. From the inside, they look like rolling gas clouds. Very yellow light. Rainbows. I get the impression, though, I don't see that it's liquid. Then I came through the cloud cover. Surface. It looks like sand dunes. They're made of very large gray crystals, so they slide. Tremendous winds. Sort of like maybe the prevailing winds of Earth, but very close to the surface of Jupiter. In that view, the horizon looks orange or rose colored but overhead it's kind of greenish yellow if I look to the right there is an enormous mountain range I feel that there's liquid somewhere those mountains are very huge but they still don't poke up through the crystal cloud cover you know I had a dream once something like this where the cloud cover was a great arc sweeps over the entire heaven those grains which make that sand orange are quite large they have a polished surface and they look something like amber or obsidian but they're yellowish and not as heavy the wind blows them they slide along if i turn the whole thing seems enormously flat i mean if i get that feeling that if a man stood in those sands i think he would sink into them haha <laughs> maybe that's where the liquid feeling comes from so that's the end of that conversation or remote viewing session that I put down anyhow. In 1998, in his autobiography, Penetration, the question of extraterrestrial and human telepathy, Swan described his work with individuals in an unknown agency who study extraterrestrials. His remote viewing of a secret ET base on the hidden side of the moon and his shocking experience with a sexy, scantily dressed female ET in a Los Angeles supermarket. He concludes that extraterrestrials are living on Earth in humanoid bodies. 
Swan deduces that there are many extraterrestrials, that many are bio-androids, and that they are aware their only foes on Earth are psychics. Later, Swan and an individual known as Mr. Axelrod took a flight to an unknown northerly destination deduced by Swan as possibly Alaska, along with two twin bodyguards. Swan and Axelrod attempt to secretly watch a recurrent UFO appear and suck up the water of a lake. Mr. Axelrod discloses that the silent growing oscillating triangle is simultaneously scanning the area and eliminating any animals in the area and that the silent beams emanating from the object were blasting deer or porcupines from the woods or something. The twin bodyguards come to attention, they've been discovered and the group is attacked by the UFO. Swan was thrown to safety by his colleagues and sustained a minor injury. Huh. Go Swan. Yeah, they're all uh, kind of throwing us wild cards here by the end of their stories, to be honest. Couple more. Okay. Couple quick mentions. Ed Dames. Dames was one of the first five army students trained by Ingo Swan through stage three in coordinate remote viewing. Because Dames' role was intended to be a session monitor and analyst as an aide to Fred Atwater, who we did not talk about. So pretend like you already know and we covered him. Other than a remote viewer, Dames received no further formal remote viewing training. After his assignment to the remote viewing unit at the end of January 1986, he was used to run remote viewers as a monitor and provide training and practice sessions to viewer personnel. He soon established a reputation for pushing CRV to extremes with target sessions on Atlantis, Mars, UFOs, and aliens. He is a frequent guest on Coast to Coast AM. Major General Albert Subblebine a key sponsor of the research of Project Stargate at Fort Meade, Maryland. Major General Stubblebine was convinced of the reality of a wide variety of psychic phenomena. It required that all his battalion commanders learn how to bend spoons like Uri Geller, and he himself attempted several psychic feats, even attempting to walk through walls. In the early 80s, he was responsible for the United States Army Intelligence and Security Command, during which time the remote viewing project in the U.S. Army began. After some controversy involving these experiments, including alleged security violations from uncleared civilian psychics working in sensitive compartmented information facilities, Major General Subblebein was placed on retirement. Lynn Buchanan one of the U.S. military's controlled remote viewers from 1984 through 1992 in which he worked first as a viewer and then as a database manager, trainer, training officer, and property book officer. Upon retirement, he worked as a computer systems analyst at the DIA. Odd to retire and work somewhere else, perhaps he means from the remote viewing program. And the CIA declassified the existence of the military's remote viewing effort in 1994. It became public knowledge that Lynn had been the unit's trainer and he was quickly overwhelmed with applications for training. About this time, he started the Assigned Witness Program, which uses trained and experienced controlled remote viewers to do pro bono remote viewing work, police and other public service organizations. The original intent of the program was to help police find missing children. However, as cases met with success, the various departments and agencies began to enlist the remote viewers in other projects. Presently, problems Solutions Innovations continues to work with public service agencies and the corporate world to train to make use of talented and qualified controlled remote viewers. And has written about his experience of what he learned about the human mind in a book entitled The Seven Senses. You can actually go to his website and sign up for a course on remote viewing if you are interested. From what I've been doing while you've been talking, basically all these guys have websites. Oh yeah, they do. I mean, what else do you do when you're so specially trained in something like this like you can't do anything else you can't put trained remote viewer like work for the CIA on your resume and just like go work as a secretary somewhere they're gonna be like you're overqualified obviously so yeah that's the end those are some people you may have heard of them may not have heard before of them. this ends I just found some super weird information about Yuri Geller that I I think okay. again some more yeah I think first off he has a website but this is just on the Wikipedia page and I need to okay. go from here to the web page to just bring this bizarre story forward so he has a penchant for lawsuits in 1991 Geller sued Timex Corporation and advertising firm Fallon McGellick <laughs> for millions in Geller 
Miller v. Fallon McGilligan over an ad showing a person bending forks in another item but failing to stop at Timex watch. <laughs> because of this lawsuit, Geller was sanctioned for $149,000 for filing a frivolous lawsuit. I could get him doing that because they're clearly... This is not the first lawsuit that he's filed. So... He, he gets labeled as a frivolous lawsuit litigant at this point. And in 1999, he considered suing Ikea over furniture lines that had a bent leg that were called Yuri's. Oh my God. And I, I think my favorite, in November of 2000, Yuri Geller sued video game company Nintendo for 60 million pounds over a Pokemon species known as Kadabra, which he claimed was an unauthorized appropriation of his identity. The Pokemon in question has psychic abilities and carries a spoon. Geller also claims that the star of Kadabra's forehead and the lightning pattern on his abdomen are symbols popular with the Waffen SS of Nazi Germany. Okay, this is hilarious because I just went to his website because he just said yeah. that he had a thing. Yeah. And literally like five videos yeah. down, Pokemon. it says Pokemon being sued. Kadabra versus Uri Geller. What really happened? This is a huge video with an insane amount of facts. Yep. Pokemon gets sued for using the likeliness of Uri Geller for Kadabra. This really happened and the lawsuit against Nintendo still has not been resolved. Here are the facts about Uri yeah. Geller suing Pokemon. So I encourage you all have Having not seen this video at all, please go watch it because it's probably hilarious. Yeah. I like how he finds anything. Well, I mean, I could see all of these. I could see all of them vaguely. Like him making, yeah. Which is why he's been labeled frivolous. I like the IKEA with the bent leg yeah. called Yuri. But yeah, I'm sorry. I had to add that. I was reading that while we were going through it. And I was like, my God, we can't not talk about Yuri. I do here. like that. We can't not talk about that. I agree with that. But with that, this episode comes to a close. And I do have one last question. And that is, what were the coordinates you gave us in the last episode? The coordinates that I gave you in the last episode were to Point Nemo. Is there a river and a tree? No, there is not. In fact, Point Nemo is considered the loneliest place on Earth because the nearest land is 2,688 kilometers away. In fact, if you are there, you are considered the loneliest person on Earth because you are 2,700 kilometers away from the nearest human being. Yeah, there is no tree on this land. There is no land. <laughs> only water. Only, only, oh. Oh, I thought I saw a rock somewhere. I mean, maybe, but... <laughs> It's the middle of the ocean. Well, boy, was I wrong. And if anybody just pictured floating out at the ocean being lonely, then boy, were you right. And yeah, if that is what you thought or saw, then maybe we should get you in touch with the right people. Probably not Yuri. He'll probably sue you. But everybody probably. else, we can probably get you set up. Anyhow, this has been our dive into remote viewing. We're going to stay on the clandestine activity for a little bit longer, and then we'll see where we go from there. We have been Journey to the Fringe, Taylor and Chelsea here. Thank you all for listening, and yeah. we'll see you next week. Bye. Thank you for listening to Journey to the Fringe. If you have liked what you have listened to, please like, share, subscribe, or follow, depending on what venue you are listening to us through also please if possible leave a five-star review as that really helps us in the algorithms should you wish to interact with us please check us out on your social media of choice i bet you we are there and if you really want to communicate with us and give us ideas for new episodes or tell us that we're wrong and terrible either way please send us an email at journey to the fringe at gmail.com for now i'll see you in the next episode